0: Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox, and I would like to welcome you to the newest edition to the Compliance Podcast Network from the Editor's Desk, a podcast where myself and Dave LeFort, Editor-in-Chief at Compliance Week, unpack some of the top stories which have or will appear in Compliance Week each month. We look at the top compliance stories, talk some sports, and generally try to solve the world's problems. In this episode, we take a look at some of the top stories from October and Compliance Week, specifically a great piece by Allie McDevitt on academic research into whistleblowers and whistleblower reporting systems that went very awry and raised some serious ethical issues. We talk about Compliance Week 2022 conference, and of course, talk some great sports. I know you'll enjoy this episode, all on this episode of From the Editor's Desk know you'll enjoy this podcast. From the Editor's Desk is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of From the Editor's Desk with Dave Leefort, now Managing Director at Compliance Week. Dave, uh, first of all, welcome.
1: Thank you, Tom. Uh, and again, I'm Dave Leefort, Managing Director and former Editor-in-Chief at Compliance Week. Um, Happy to join you as usual, Tom, to discuss some of our top stories, the things that we're following, and as always, talk some sports. Uh, In today's episode, I think we're going to take a look back at an important story from October on fraudulent hotline reports, uh, and also look at what we're going to be covering in the coming weeks. And I'm guessing we'll probably reflect on that Red Sox, Astros, ALCS as well.
0: You know, we just might do that. (laughs) <laughs> so, Dave, as always, some great stories uh, in October in compliance. Be well, What were maybe a couple that really stood out from your perspective?
1: So, I'm going to talk about one in particular um, that ran fairly recently, and it was on this this phenomenon that sort of occurred over the summer that flew under the radar for the most part until it was sort of bubbled to the surface by uh, by a source. The, that uh, sort of, you know, brought it to our attention. So there are, as you know, of course, every company has hotline reporting, and a part of, big part of compliance's job is to monitor those hotlines and to follow up with investigations on any, any significant um, reports that come in. So hotlines are an integral part of any robust compliance program. Just so happens that over the summer, uh, the University of Singapore, unbeknownst to compliance practitioners worldwide, was conducting sort of a test or I guess research into the responsiveness of those hotlines. So there was a as part of a, uh, a research project. These University of Singapore students would file uh, would file fraudulent reports to hotlines and see what uh, what kind of response they would get from companies. So they would file the reports and then wait to see what the follow up was essentially. Um, and they would they would be leaving they would include uh, they would include detail enough. So that the person reading it would know that it was a legitimate and significant incident, but they would exclude enough details to not be able to, 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 in other words, to require follow-up. So they knew that the company wouldn't be able to act just on the tip alone, but would rather have to follow-up. So they were trying to measure, uh, measure the follow-up. So all of these companies, I think there were several hundred in total, were getting bombarded with these reports. And they were all very similar reports. And rightly, the the people managing the hotlines were flagging them as suspicious because they didn't inc- they didn't include a lot of the information that you might usually find in a hotline report. Um, and as as the case was, these the the practitioners that were monitoring the hotline reports were bubbling those to the surface, and in some cases they were reporting reporting them to their corporate counsel, and in this case, how this was discovered was uh, a few lawyers from Wilmer Hale, which which is which sort of provides corporate counsel services for a lot of companies. So they would they would be getting these reports or what, what they believed were uh, were legitimate reports, and were trying to figure out whether, you know, what to do about them and how to follow up with them and also gauging, you know, whether indeed because they were flagged as potentially fraudulent, but they were treating them as, as if they were legitimate. But what literally what happened was these these attorneys at, at Wilmer Hale were were talking to each other, saying, like, hey, I got this one in the hotline report here, what should I do about it? And then another attorney would say, Wait a minute, this looks very familiar, and they would compare. And what they found was that a lot of the the hotline reports that were being bubbled to them or being sent to them were similar enough to lead them to believe that it was a hoax, that it was all just a big fraud. And so they did some research research into it. And I know, um, NavX global, um, who we spoke to about this, they, they have a a pretty robust hotline reporting product that they, uh, that they sell to companies as well. And so companies were also following up with them with the same information. And so they separately were conducting their own sort of investigation and found similar, um, Similar similarities between the reports and what it came back to is they discovered that these were coming from um, students at the University of Singapore who were conducting this research. Now, where, where this gets into potentially unethical territory is that the when you're conducting academic research, it is part of your ethical obligation to not test it on human subjects unless they're aware of it. And the way that they that this was justified by the University of Singapore was they said that they were they weren't testing on on human subjects. They were testing on firms and companies responsiveness. But these were these were these were people who were responding to these reports. So in a sense, they were they were sort of breaking their own ethical guidelines or at least walking, you know, straying over that ethical uh, ethical line in the sand. Um but as a result, there were these companies that, and keep in mind too, the, the context of this was over the summer. So we were in the middle of a pandemic, ransomware attacks were fairly common, and compliance teams were already on high alert looking for phishing scams or anything really out of the ordinary. So of course, these were being flagged all over the place, which means if these were being flagged and these were garnering attention, what other potentially legitimate, complaints were not getting attention. There's only so much bandwidth any organization has. And so if these were garnering attention, that means something else, potentially legitimate complaints were either getting delayed responses or or perhaps weren't getting responses at all. So this is a serious, this is a serious thing, a serious issue. Um, And the University of Singapore has since um, apologized. They've stopped conducting the research. Uh, But as it turns out, they weren't. They were not the first uh, academic institution to do this. So when we looked, there was a, there was a Harvard University study a little bit further back. I think it was a couple of years ago that uh, did the same the same thing, um, except for the fact that they didn't uh, they didn't provide as many details and it didn't get flagged industry wide. And I don't think it was as as widespread as this. And they re- they actually published their results. In um, I think it was a, a public uh, academic publication uh, out of the University of Chicago. Um, so as part of the results that they published, there was a little note in there that said that while we did run this past our certification board to to get the academic research certified, our general counsel after the fact flagged it as as potentially an area of risk for the university because there were actually uh, people impacted by this. So it's a very, it's an interesting phenomenon that, you know, a lot, and and we, we, as part of this reporting, I should note that uh, Jacqueline Jaeger, compliance week reporter wrote the story. She did a terrific job. She interviewed people. She interviewed the Harvard professor who conducted his survey, she interviewed um, impacted Uh, impacts and compliance practitioners about how it impacted their jobs. She interviewed other uh, thought leaders about, you know, what kind of impact could this have? Is this kind of thing sort of going on without without any of us knowing it? Is this more widespread than just these two incidents? Um, So it was a very interesting story about um, sort of academic research Gone awry, if you will, so that the results were very much uh, not the intention of the academic study, but it very much impacted real world uh, compliance practitioners' abilities to effectively do their jobs. Um, so yeah, it was it was something that deserved spotlighting and deserved, you know, being uh, I guess called it, called attention to it for the fact that it, it was it was impacting. Um, Impacting companies uh, globally. this wasn't just in the United States. Um, and you know, who knows what what the overall impact was? Who knows what might have been missed. Now, the companies we spoke we spoke to all said that it didn't overwhelm them, didn't overwhelm their systems, but um, at the end of the day, uh, you really don't know the true the true impact.
0: I found that last point perhaps the most troubling for me, Dave, because of number one, Uh, whatever uh, information garnered through the study, I can immediately see that it's not valid. Number two, if you're a compliance officer and you start getting reports, one, it's going to drive your numbers up. Two, you obviously got to do some type of investigation, so there's a cost factor. But three, it may make you misallocate resources to an area or group that doesn't need it. And could really take away from uh, a valid allocation of resources or internal investigations. Um, so I just see lots and lots of problems with this.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point with the skewing of the data too, and, and where to and where to allocate resources. That really threw kind of threw a lot of organizations off, and they they found themselves having to go back and 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 look at you know okay, let's identify which ones were. Which ones were valid? Which ones did we deem to be invalid? And then let's redo our numbers and make sure we're putting the resources in the right places. And that exercise in itself was expending resources. So it's, uh, yeah, it definitely had some, some unintended harmful effects.
0: Or perhaps someone outside a compliance function looking at this and saying, well, we're getting bogus claims from our employees. Why should we engage in this? Why should we celebrate a speak-up right. culture if we're going to get these bogus claims? So, mm. Not good.
1: Yeah, no, not good at all. No.
0: So, you have been ongoing uh, or had an ongoing series called in, uh, survey, I should say, called Inside the Mind of the CCO. And you talked a little bit about it in our last episode, but hopefully, you've gotten some more insights uh, over the past uh, thirty days or so. So, I was wondering uh, if you can continue to tease us with some of the insights <laughs> and where you uh, any surprises? I guess you have at this point
1: yeah so we actually this is our third annual inside the mind of the CCO survey where we we sort of try to get at the um, uh, we get at the pain points and the uh, the daily struggles of the of the chief compliance officer and those who aspire to be chief compliance officers we ask them about their priorities uh, all sorts of questions it's A third thirty something question survey um, anything from salary to whether they like their jobs to what are their biggest challenges and so we the survey is closed we closed it just a few days ago and we are now in the midst of analyzing the data and producing the uh, producing the i guess the the stories and the infographics that will go along with it now i do have a few takeaways to share uh on on some of the results so first off is that we we you know 30% Thirty percent of those who answered the survey were either chief compliance officers or chief ethics and compliance officers. So, we do have a lot of uh, senior compliance professionals uh, in there. So that so we, we know that we reach the I guess the the target audience, the right audience. Um, a few things that we're following up on right now is that in a trend that continued this year was ninety five percent of respondents said that they liked their jobs. Now, that's the same exact percentage as it was last year, and it's up actually five points from two years ago. So the question that we're now asking is, if, if, if we're now seeing that 95% of the people who answer the survey like their jobs, how, is, how, is, how, how does that work within the context we're living in? That is, you know, how is the great resignation that, we're, that sort of the United States is going through now, how has it impacted compliance? or is compliance somehow immune to this great resignation that this phenomenon we're seeing where people changing jobs after spending a year and a half in lockdown and now feeling sort of reevaluating all sorts of aspects of their lives. Um, so we're seeing, you know, up to, you know, three to 5% of, of people in jobs, uh, deciding that they need a change, um, you know, almost within the net, within, you know, a three month period, I think that's the numbers say. Um, but we're, that would, but we're also seeing that 95% of the people who responded to the survey say that they enjoy their jobs. So what we're, what we're getting at with that, we're going to drill into that and talk to uh, interview a lot of people in the industry about is the great resignation impacting compliance to the same degree it's impacting other businesses. Like I know the tech sector is feeling it hard um how how is it applying to compliance so that's that's one takeaway that we will have at the at the end of this we're still again doing the, doing the reporting on it um another takeaway i wanted to pass along was that for the third straight year uh when people were asked the question about which part of their job keeps them up at night um the number one answer was a lack of support and resources and that that has been the number one answer for three straight years um the interesting part is this year, the number two answer to that question, again, the question was what part of their job uh, keeps them up at night? The number two answer was cybersecurity threats. Now, a year ago, that was number four on the list. And the year before that, it was number six. So you're seeing the increase in, I guess, uh, I won't say importance, but the increase in significance of Ransomware attacks and phishing attacks, and any in these all of these emerging cyber threats, the impact that it's having on uh, on compliance and who people who do these jobs. So going along with that is that two-thirds of respondents said that uh, recent ransomware attacks and other cyber incidents over the past year, and we cited a few of them, including the colonial pipeline attack. Um they said so two-thirds said that. Uh, recent ransomware attacks or other cyber incidents um, has prompted their companies to beef up their cyber protections and uh, reevaluate their protocols. And of that group, 50% of their companies have either purchased or were considering purchasing cyber insurance to help mitigate, mitigate at least some of that risk that goes along with cyber attacks. So I think all of those numbers sort of add up to people looking at this looming risk of uh, you know a, either a ransomware attack or a phishing scam or anything that uh, would compromise their data or would risk the protection of their data as sort of a almost an unquantifiable risk and anything that is really that's hard to to put it to put a number on or to Mitigate successfully um, is something that they're going to want protection for, and I think that's why you're seeing so many, uh, so many people answering this the the cyber insurance question with with the yes yes we've purchased it or yes we're considering it because that is a that's a huge risk to not it's one thing to account for it by implementing a more robust policies and procedures and have new technology in place, but even that does not ensure. That you're not going to get attacked, because you only need to have one, one person, whether it's inside the company, outside the company, wherever, a cyber, a hacker only needs to be successful once in order to gain access to your system. Now, if when you're talking about uh, cybersecurity protections, they need to be uh, successful 100% of the time. So that's that is a that's a tall order, that's a tall ask, and so. What we're finding is that companies, they want more uh, more security, more protection and reduce that risk. So they're more and more they're purchasing um, cyber insurance. And now one of the ironic things about that is, is that sometimes hackers will hack into these firms that are actually providing the cyber insurance. They're discovering which companies have purchased cyber insurance and what their, I guess, what their policy maximum is. And they will, uh, they'll ask for a ransom demand that's just a little bit under the, the maximum. <laughs> so in other words, they'll, they'll know exactly what to ask for and know that they'll get it. So it's, it's a very complicated, very complex, uh, and also a very dangerous area, this, this, this emerging um, cyber risks, especially around ransomware. Um, and we know that it's causing compliance practitioners a lot of anxiety and that they're doing everything they can Including, you know, uh, beefing up their their policies, procedures, and also, you know, now purchasing cyber insurance. They're doing everything they can to try and mitigate that risk because that that's their job is to identify the risks and try to and try to mitigate those risks. So that's it's a it's a phenomenon that's not going away anytime soon, and uh, these survey results sort of um, lend credence to that.
0: So, Dave, uh, I'd like maybe now to turn to into the future. And I wanted to start with, uh, it's a little bit down the road, but you've got it up on the website. So I wanted to bring it up, and that's Compliance Week Conference 2022. Uh, I am very excited to see this up on the website. <laughs> I know you guys Me too. are. But uh, could, you, yeah. uh, could you tell us a little bit about the event, wh- when it will be and uh, where it will be and, and what your hopes are for it?
1: Yeah, so we are, I can't tell you how excited we are. So we haven't had an in-person conference since 2019. Um, So we are super excited to be going back live for our 16th annual national conference. Uh, It's going to be in Washington, D.C. We're at a new venue this year. So we traditionally have been at the Mayflower Hotel, which if you know it, it's a historic venue. It's got a lot of charm, but it's also a little bit cramped. So we're moving to just down the street to the JW Marriott, uh, which is, has a lot, a much bigger space. It's more modern. Um, It accommodates what we need a lot better. And it's also better for, you know, having a live event in the middle of a, of a pandemic too. So there's more space. There's more room to, to, to be socially distant. Um, There's more room to, to move around. So um, we're super excited about it. It's going to be May 16th to 18th. Um, again, the JW Marriott in downtown DC. Um, we we have we have one speaker book so far, John Kerry Rue, who wrote Bad Blood, the story of uh, the, the 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 rise and fall of of Theranos. Uh, he's also he right now is following uh, the trial of uh, its founder Elizabeth Holmes, so I'm sure he'll have some great takeaways there. Um, we're also we're reaching out to regulators in DC. They're all in DC, so we're looking. We're trying to book uh, someone from the SEC, someone from the FBI, someone from the DOJ, because we know that practitioners want to hear uh, directly from the source. More than anything, though, what we've heard so far is that people just want to get together again. They want to be in person. They want to shake hands or hug or just stand across from people again. They want to network. They want to go out to dinners again. So our our annual conference has sort of been. You know, a lot of companies have planned their annual compliance meetings around it. And it's always a, a popular spot for companies to send big groups to to go out to and have dinners together, to have drinks together, to, to network, but also to to learn from each other. And it's and its industry agnostic. So you've got people in finance sitting next to people in manufacturing, sitting, people next, sitting next to people in tech. So there's a lot you can learn from your peers, uh, across industries. Um, one of the things that we're doing is we're, uh, we're offering, it's the lowest price we've had in at least a decade, probably more, but it's a very low price. It's, yeah, it's only until December. So we, what we want to do is we know that there is a community of people who are itching to get back to the in-conference, sorry, the in-person conference experience. So we're making it easier for them. We have until December first, the first 100 people who who sign up for the conference will get our, our again our lowest rate in 10 years, which is uh, uh, 1195 for uh, for members of Compliance Week, and 1395 for non-members. So you only not only get that price, but you'll also get a special designation as a CW ambassador. That sort of signifies that you're standing there with us. You're you're you want to go back in person just as bad as we do. Um, and that designation will give you uh, certain benefits at the event itself, such as access to a, to a private uh, lounge, for example. Um, so we're, we're, we're incentivizing people to, to sign up early to get in there. You know, we're 100 percent confident that this is going to be an in-person event unless, God forbid, knock on wood, unless uh, conditions dictate otherwise. Um, but the other thing we want to reinforce is that we're going to do this safely like we've spent a lot of the last two months trying to figure out, okay, what, what policies do we have to put in place in order to make people feel safe? So we're requiring uh, proof of COVID vaccination to, to get into the event. We're going to require masks and or social distancing based on the guidance at the time. So we're not, I mean, I can't tell you right now what the environment is gonna look like in May of next year. But I can tell you that we're going to follow whatever the guidance is, and we're going to err on the side of being safe. Um, So, yeah, we're super excited about that. We can't wait to to get people together again. Um, We had a great new venue. We love D.C., uh, and it's going to be a lot of fun.
0: So, Dave, where can uh, listeners go for more information about Compliance Week Conference 2022?
1: Yeah, I would, I would say go to uh, complianceweek.com. It's, it's really, it's splashed all over our front page right now. You'll find a special um, subsection of the site dedicated to the conference where you can find out what our uh, our safety procedure is going to be. You can read the details of our CW ambassador offer. You can get uh, some photos. You can look see some photos from the venue. You can book your hotel room. You can buy tickets, all, all of that stuff you can do um, right from the, the website.
0: So it's time to save the world now, Dave. <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I thought we might talk a little baseball.
1: I figured you might go there.
0: So uh, I think everyone on the planet knows, and if they don't, I will tell them again, the Houston Astros are in the World Series for the third time in five years, uh, having Jeez. defeated, unfortunately, your Boston Red Sox and the ALCS. yes. The yeah. ALCS was probably the most roller coaster series I can remember. We had one game five four, then we had two blowouts by the Sox, then we had three by the Astros. I certainly know how I felt in games two and three, so I yeah. want to ask you
1: how you felt
0: <laughs> over, over the so, last
1: three. Yeah, it was so that was tough because. You know, I I had sort of the Red Sox did not finish the season very strong. They they had they got swept by the Yankees the the series before like three of the final six games of the regular season they were swept by the Yankees, and so Red Sox headed into the postseason. I would say all Red Sox fans really were were not optimistic. So it was so the Red Sox started the season very very strong, very much exceeded expectations. Then they fell back to the meet and finished the season sort of in a lull. They lost their first place standing. They ended up getting sneaking in as a wild card. They won their wild card game. was great. Then they started their series with the Astros. And again, there was a sense of like, oh, we're just happy to be here. Then they came back to win. Then no, sorry. Then it was the Rays. I'm sorry. I almost forgot about the Rays series. So they lost game one to the Rays. They came back to win game two. Uh, and then won the next two, and that was a shock because the Rays won the AL East by a very wide margin, and I think they were probably the AL favorite to come out, the favorite to come out of the American League. And so that's when everybody in these parts were on board with this Red Sox team. Everyone was a fan. It the, the atmosphere at Fenway was electric, and the way that the Astros series started, uh, I would say, was equally great because they started out. What was it? I think it was game two where they had the back-to-back innings with grand slam so they lost if my mind is if i'm correct they lost game one they won game two and game three was the first game at fenway and they had another grand slam in that game and they i think they got to a nine nine nothing lead ended up winning nine to five and so at that point red sox nation was at the top of the world you turn on sports radio. Already talking about the World Series. We're going to beat the cheating Astros. It's going to be, this is an unbelievable comeback story. There were comparisons to the 2013 Red Sox team that sort of gelled right at the end of the season and ended up winning the World Series that year. Uh, you might as well have started planning the parade route around here. So it was, you know, Red Sox were up two to one. Uh, and then the wheels came off, <laughs> the offense went flat. The Astros started to pitch, uh, and it was it was downhill from there. Um, so I have to say, my feeling from it, just emotionally as a Sox fan, was very much that of the roller coaster. It was a uh, end of the season. I was down on the team after they beat the Rays. Back up a little bit. Then the first two games, first three, sorry, first three games against the Astros, it was top of the world. It was sky's the limit. This is this is all gravy. This is house money. We're gonna get another World Series in Boston. I was telling my 14 year old son, we're gonna get tickets to the World Series at Fenway. It's gonna be unbelievable. And another another instance of counting my chickens before they were hatched. Astros started pitching. Uh, Sox bats went absolutely silent. I think they were they were no hit in the first at least four or five innings of the the next two games. Uh, yeah, five innings. So. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, you know, the Astros in the end, looking at it logically were absolutely the better team. They absolutely had more talent. And I actually think they'll, they'll beat the Braves in the world series. But as a Red Sox fan, it was, uh, it was tough to go on that roller coaster because you get sucked in by it. And, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's hard not to, but I congratulate you as an Astros fan, being willing to embrace this team from start to finish Whatever everyone's against you. Everyone's calling you cheaters. And you know, they're, you know, they're now I think poised to, to win it all.
0: So someone texted me today and, and said, what are your thoughts uh, on the cheaters? On uh, So I actually I have to credit you. I took your advice to embrace the hate and I decided <laughs> it's great being the bad guy. So bang that trash can. It is. But the other thing I want, I want, I never want anyone to forget what that cheating did. It tarnished a title in 2017. It tarnished players forever. Uh, the core Astros that are still here from 2017, there's four plus a pitcher. The, uh, and I mean, they'll, they will always have that legacy. And when they're 39, they may have guys thrown at their heads uh, just because, Yeah. and I want people to understand if you cheat, there's consequences. Yeah, you could lose a title, but it's, you're a cheater for the rest of your life. And you just said it, the cheating Astros. So, right, uh, right.
1: That's, yeah. I think the Boxing Globe had media, a similar thought. Right, the media here all week was about the cheating Astros, even though you know our manager, Alex Cora, by the way, was, was the mastermind behind those cheating Astros, and the Red Sox, the next year, were dinged for some of those same things that the Astros were doing. So, it's you're absolutely right. Is that if you're if you're caught cheating, it's it's going to follow you, and that's not something that you think about in the moment when you're beating the trash can. It's it only comes it only comes after the fact that realization.
0: So let me turn maybe now to uh, the NFL because we're now through I think game seven or perhaps uh, game eight, and we've had some really interesting storylines. And I maybe just wanted to get get your thoughts on. What are the most surprising storylines to you? And and I'll hold mine till after years. They may they may be the same, but uh, <laughs> is it the Chiefs? Is it the Cardinals? Is it something different? Or is it Tom Brady? So,
1: <laughs> so it's actually a combination of two of the things you said. So so me for me the biggest surprise has been the Chiefs and the Chiefs looking mortal all of a sudden after two years of being clearly the most talented team in the NFL. Now they are. They're stuck at, I believe they're two, the same record as the Patriots. I know that three and four, I think. So they are very much. They look mediocre. Patrick Mahomes looks mediocre. So he was Patrick Mahomes. Remember, a couple of years back, was the guy that was going to be taking the mantle from Tom Brady as the 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 most recognizable face, the the number one quarterback in the NFL. Uh, he was supposed to be the guy for the next decade plus. He had all the tools, he had all the talent, has a great um, mind for the game, has great physical ability, uh, but all of a sudden now he's not looking so hot. And simultaneously in Tampa, Tom Brady, who's now 44 years old, is still has the Bucks looking. You know, for a few weeks there they were they were struggling a little bit, but they're still five and two. They're one of the best teams in the NFL again. And Tom Brady has, I think, you know, and I might be wrong on that. I think he's got 17 touchdown passes and three interceptions. And he's 44 years old. It's incredible. Bill Belichick, the guy who knows more about football than probably anyone else out there, two years ago said, We don't need this guy. We think he's done. Sorry. We're gonna move on. And he couldn't have been more wrong. So Tom Brady's still He's still the guy carrying the NFL. And that and that's even more, I guess, unbelievable when you look at it within the context of someone like Patrick Mahomes, who is supposed to be taking that mantle. It sort of shows how hard it is to, to be as good, To in other words, sustaining that level of success for so long. And Tom Brady's done it now for 22, 20, I think this is his 22nd year, 22 years he's sustained it. Uh, he's only had one season where his team was 8-8. Eight eight. The, the Patriots were 8-8 eight eight in 2002. That was Tom Brady's second year as a starter. And I think every season since, they've had at least 10 wins. There might have been one nine-win season there. I'm not sure. And, of course, he missed the 2008 season with a knee injury. So even then they went 11-5. and five. But nevertheless – it just shows you how difficult it is and how special a player Tom Brady is. So and that's that surprises me that he's 44 and is still able to do that. I'm a year older than Tom Brady. I can't even shoot hoops outside with my daughter for more than 10 minutes without getting winded. But that's that's a different story, but but it's it's just it's it's phenomenal. And to to put that in the context of the struggles that Patrick Mahomes is having, and that's, you know, that's to be expected he's only human you know these these are these are mere mortals except for tom brady it appears
0: (laughs) so i had a a couple and i alluded to them uh first of all uh whatever you think i think of the astros it pales compared to what i think of the cowboys so uh, (laughs) that's a big deal for me uh but the cardinals and Bengals have the two best records in football and to me uh the Cardinals are the biggest surprise, but not far behind are the Bengals, which uh, they were terrible last year. At another top first round pick, and they're six and one. But to have the Cardinals at seven and zero, oh, I don't think anybody had that on their dance card. So, but um, um, you know, we're getting ready for a second half of a very long season, so we may yeah. have more to talk about.
1: And the interesting part of that is, I agree on the Bengals, but the name that we're not hearing at all about is Joe Burrow. Their quarterback, he's having an outstanding season, but people just see the Bengals as the Bengals. If Joe Burrow was doing that for, I don't know, let's say the New York Jets or the New York Giants or uh, the Washington Reds or the Washington Football Team, excuse me, uh, then I think you'd be hearing a lot more about Joe Burrow. But he sort of very quietly is putting together potentially an MVP season in in Cincinnati. That I agree. That's that's the biggest surprise right there. Is, is the Bengals? you at least saw the potential in Kyler Murray in the Cardinals uh, you knew the offense was there I guess um, but yeah I'm with you on the Bengals.
0: so Dave as always this has been a great episode I look forward to continuing the conversation I'm Tom Fox the compliance evangelist
1: thank you Tom it's been a pleasure and again I'm Dave Leaford from compliance week uh, we'll see you next time
0: This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of From the Editor's Desk. I've linked to the Inside the Mind of the CCO survey in the show notes, as well as information and registration materials for Compliance Week 2022 conference. I hope you will check out both of those. I am extraordinarily thrilled to be headed back to a live event in uh, May of next year, and I hope that you will join me at Compliance Week 2022. Thanks again for listening. Dave and I will be back at the end of November to take another look
1: back at Compliance Week from the editor's desk. you are interested in how ESG
0: intersects with compliance, check out my new podcast, The ESG Report, also appearing on the Compliance Podcast Network.